Morning, New Hope family. Morning. Glad that you're here. If you're, if you're new here, you're still part of the family, so we're glad that you're here too. Um, a big event after the service this morning. If you've been new to New Hope in the last few weeks and you're not feeling like you're getting plugged in, there's a small group event after this service. I'll talk about that more in a minute. And you can get connected, get to meet people, get to meet some of the small group leaders. So I'll come back to that. I'm going to ask you if you have a hard copy of the Bible or electronic version or maybe you wrote it down in your palm this morning, I don't know, go to Romans chapter 1 and also Jeremiah 18 and also 1 Samuel chapter 2. And if you're only going to choose one of those three, go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Okay, we'll be there in just a minute. You, maybe you found a hard copy in the seat in front of you underneath on the rack. There's a few there. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the verses up on the screen as well. That'll help you out. I'm going to ask you to pray with me in just a minute, recognizing that what we're about to step into, we really need to be able to find ourselves in the midst of this story. Those are the best stories that you can find yourself in, and that God would reveal to us the action He wants us to take as a result of what He's about to show us. So I'm going to ask you, in light of what we're about to look at, it's pretty heavy stuff, but it also ends very hopeful that you would join me in prayer. Let's join together. Father, I thank you for each and every soul that is part of this service right now, that you would uh, knit our hearts together, whether we're watching from home virtually or we're part of the auditorium audience, that we would feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And nothing that we're about to examine would slide past us, but rather that we would give it our direct and immediate attention and where your Holy Spirit is prompting us to take action in our own personal lives, that we would be willing to do that. That we not treat this lightly, especially in view of the fact we're about to take communion after this, God, that we would see these as opportunities to put a stake in the ground. So I pray that you would speak to us individually and confirm in our spirit the actions you want us to take, but we also ask for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Not familiar with how familiar you might be or might not be with the Old Testament stories and Old Testament history, so we're going to kind of look at both this morning when we get into 1 Samuel. There's this ancient story that's told. So just bear with me as I review just a snippet of the history of Israel in the Old Testament and their very rocky relationship to God and how God responded to them. A few minutes ago, you sang about a potter. And we talked about the reality that he's the potter, we're the clay, he shapes us, he makes us, he's not done with us yet. Every ancient village had a potter. Jeremiah knew that. In Jeremiah 18, you find God coming to Jeremiah and saying to him specifically, Jeremiah, I want you to go to the potter's house and stand there and watch and see what the potter is doing. So Jeremiah did that. He went and watched the potter who was shaping clay on a wheel, and he ruined the pottery he was working on. And he had to smash it and start over again and reshape it. And in light of that, God was giving Jeremiah a visual. Jeremiah 18, if you look with me on the screen at verse 6, it says this, "'Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does?' Declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Verse 9, or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. That's a pretty clear warning from God. Don't you dare turn your back on me or there will be consequences. So God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I want you to gather the elders of Israel together and I want you to pronounce something to them about what I just said. Verse 11, this is what he says. So now then, talking to Jeremiah, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. And I want you to see God the rescuer now. Watch God plead. Oh, turn back, each of you, from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. In that, you see God speaking to the nation and to the individual. 
you represent a body in this auditorium. If you're at home with your family, you represent a unit. But singularly, you're an individual before God. And in that passage, you see God speaking to the individual and speaking to the nation at the same time. Asking the individual to turn back, each of you, oh, turn back each of you from his evil way. Reform your way, reform your deeds. So he's speaking to the nation and to the individual, not an ambiguous entity. Each individual makes up a nation. So this means whatever is going to happen through God's working, it has to begin with me. It begins with me. How about if we say that together on three? One, two, three. It begins with me. It has to start in my life, in my home. But God knew the heart of Israel. He knew what they were going to say in response. In verse 12, he says, but they will say, it's hopeless, for we're going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. And that's the history of nations. In this case, the history of Israel. Follow God, abandon God. Follow God, abandon God. Follow God, abandon God. Over and over and over throughout history, choosing to walk away from God. And they fought so hard against God that he abandoned them to their evil. So we find in verse 17, Jeremiah 18, like an east wind, I will scatter them. He's talking about the Babylonian captivity here. Here comes the abandonment. Before the enemy, I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. And up until these points, God always had their back. But now he turns and says, I'm going to show you my back because you've abandoned me and you've walked away from me. And if you want to drill into it and you find just how pervasive the issue was in Jeremiah 18... They were guilty of sexual sin. They were killing their babies, and they were exalting evil. Look with me. Drop down to Jeremiah 23, 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, and that's the leaders of the nation, mind you, in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers. In other words, calling evil good. So that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me, and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. What do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? It became a total wasteland because of the unbridled, pervasive issues contaminating their world. Sexual perversion in all forms. So firsthand, we're seeing in the Old Testament what we discussed in great detail last week. There is a point when God gives a people over. And as I showed you in Romans 1, there's a progression to this what's called the wrath of abandonment, where it becomes too late. And it was true of Israel in the 13th century B.C. It was true of Israel in the 8th century B.C. It was true of Israel in the 1st century A.D. when they rejected Jesus. And there came a point when God had to give them over. And so Romans 1 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, against those who suppress the truth, in unrighteousness. Romans 1 delivered it pretty, pretty hard. Here's the conclusion we came to last week. When any culture or any individual rejects God's truth continually, it can and often does move past the point of God's patience. It can be too late. Now, with that in mind, let me remind you of what we talked about in the way of God's wrath last week. Look with me on the screen at this definition. Wrath is God's active opposition to everything opposed to him. What does that actually look like in the life of an individual or a nation? That's why I wanted to take you to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2 is this Old Testament story that brings out two individuals and helps us to look through this lens of seeing what was going on. These two individuals in 1 Samuel chapter 2 have names of Hophni and Phinehas. They're the sons of Eli the high priest. Now, by nature and by default, they automatically become priests because their dad is the high priest, the chief priest. They become priests, and therefore, they're naturally leaders of the nation as well. So we see this in 1 Samuel 2.12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Did not know means they didn't acknowledge him. 
Here's a Hebrew word that perhaps you've heard the name attached to Satan, Belial, before. Here's the Hebrew word root of it. Belial is this word ruthless or, or worthless, excuse me. Without profit, evil, and there's the phrase that I really like. God calls them naughty. They're naughty boys, okay? This is the way you would look at them and say, these aren't just children, though. These are adult men, and God calls them naughty, ungodly, and wicked. Question? How can you be raised in the house of God and not know God? Eli's their dad. He's the chief priest of the nation. And yet they're raised in his house. It means very specifically here that they've chosen wickedness instead of choosing God. They have no relationship with God. And hear me on this because this is a point that I had to discuss with individuals who are parents who have had children that have wandered away after the first service. This is not a story about godly parents who in trauma have watched their children wander away. Even though they've done everything right, their children made decisions to wander away as adults. That's not what the story is about. You'll see as this develops what's going on here. Eli wasn't suffering the trauma the way you would be thinking he would be suffering this kind of trauma. The Bible's describing a complete lack of relationship here, not just with Hophni and Phinehas, but also with Eli. Let me lean back into Romans 1. Romans 1, we had two words last week that we really hammered into in verse 18, ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we said that ungodliness is this lack of devotion, this lack of devotion and worship of God. And unrighteousness is the result of ungodliness. In other words, ungodliness leads to unrighteous behavior. So ungodliness, it's the lack of fear of God, and unrighteousness is not just the lack of fear of God. It leads to immorality, which is not simply neglect. It's saying, I know you're there. I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want, and who are you to tell me differently? So here's what unrighteousness and ungodliness looks like in the lives of Hophni and Phinehas, for Samuel 2.13. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest, and we're talking about Hophni and Phinehas, the priest servant, in other words, individuals who work for them, would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Verse 15, also before they burned the fat, meaning while the meat was still raw, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me the priest's meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. So we've got individuals who work for Hophni and Phinehas, and they're sizing up the meat, and they're seeing it in the showcase of the window. And they're saying, I like that porterhouse. My master wants that, and he wants to put it on his grill. So give it over. Bring it for us. Now, these are individuals who have brought sacrifices to God to be offered at the temple for a sweet, savoring aroma is what God called it. And you've got the priest of the nation stepping in and saying, I want that for me. Now, let me just put this in our world. What would it be like if after this service, I went back to the offering box back there and I reached in as you're putting your offering in and I stood there and took back out what I wanted for myself? Would you come back next week? No, and I wouldn't blame you, right? That's kind of the imagery of what's going on, taking whatever they want for themselves. Verse 17 says, thus, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men despise the offering of the Lord. So this is a symptom of a much larger issue. They despise God. The quintessential representation of the ungodly behavior producing unrighteous behavior is the unrighteous behavior that's identified by the action of, I know you're there. I don't care that you're there. I'm going to do whatever I want. So we would translate that to individuals who are treating God with contempt. They're ignoring his word. They know his word, but because they're ungodly, it's producing this unrighteous behavior. So God uses this word, this Hebrew word that's in your notes this morning, N-A-A-T-S, we'd spell it in English, naats. It actually is describing this despising that's going on. They're 
abhorring God. They're blaspheming God. There are massive consequences for treating God with contempt. But the story doesn't stop there. For Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. Now Eli was very old. This is the dad of Hophni and Phinehas. And heard all that his sons were doing to Israel. So I wanted you to look at that very closely, church, because I wanted you to see it's not just being done to the family. They're the leaders of the nation, and they're doing this to Israel. We could stop right there and just expand on that for a long time, but it, it gets too technical to do that right now. But note this, the sin of the leaders is hurting the nation. Go back into the story. Pick it up at that same verse. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Ritual prostitution was very common among the Canaanite people. It's familiar among the nations that surrounded Israel. God obviously forbid his people from participating in that, but apparently it made its way into Israel. Now, obviously, it's forbidden for the people of God. Now, recall what we said earlier and link it with what we explored last week that ungodliness results in unrighteous behavior. And the first sign God said of the wrath of abandonment is when the unresulting unrighteousness actions surface in sexual perversion. It's the first indication that God's bringing his wrath. Now, you would think that the patriarch of the nation, Eli, the father of the household, and the chief priest would be able to put a stop to this, that he would deliver punishment to end this behavior. Go back into the story, verse 23. He said to them, why do you do such things? The evil that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. The Lord desired to put them to death. Why? Because they've reached the point of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment has come against them. They've gone too far, and God has given them over. And clearly, this household is seriously messed up, but they're also the leaders of the nation. There's a bigger issue going on here. Let me amplify what I'm describing. Next verse, 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord. Pause. Do you notice that God has to send another voice to Eli? That God doesn't speak to his own high priest? Why is he not speaking to Eli himself? I thought he was the man of God. I mean, he's working in a church full time. Is he that dialed out that God has to speak through someone else? See, this section is telling you all that you need to know about how these people and individuals and the nation slowly are sliding into rejecting God. I don't think that Eli started out as a guy in his 20s saying, I can't wait for the day when I get to rebel against God. How do you get there? series of cataclysmic decisions. He's got two sons that are born into his house. He names one Hophni, names the other one Phineas. He raises them in the house of God, but they rebel. And he clearly has the power to stop them, but he's not doing much to stop the slide here. Now, to some degree, because of his great age, Eli is unable or he's unwilling to restrain his sons. But there's more going on here. The word actually says that Eli honored his sons above God. Go with me to the next verse. Verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling? And honor your sons above me. In this case, by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Last week, we said that any time our goal is to honor man above God, 
we're sliding perilously into this place of rejecting God. Galatians 1.10 is how I started the service last week reading that to you. Do I seek to please men or do I seek to please God? If I seek to please man, I'm putting man before God. That's my translation of it. This is exactly what God has just accused Eli of. And he is sliding perilously into this place of rebelling against God, even when it's inside his own household. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. Now, he's reminding him of the covenant that God had made with Moses and with Moses' brother Aaron, that the priest would always come through his line. But God says, I did do that. I did indeed declare that. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. In other words, disdained. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. I hope you read that as absolutely terrifying. I do. It it causes me to recoil knowing what I know about the culture of Israel in that era to be told that you're going to be cut off. There's no lineage coming from you. Your days are numbered and you will be utterly rejected. And chapter two comes to an end and it's gonna feel like a hard shift into chapter three. But watch as this story flows. Chapter three, verse one. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Not many visions is this technical term, meaning there's not seers in the land. The information from God came through seers, what we would call today prophets. There's not many seers at this time, and God is so silent, it seems like he's absolutely removed and he's distant. But I tell you, it's the silence of resolve because God is always present, amen? He's always working a plan. He's always behind the scenes, even though you can't see him. He's always present. Verse 2, it happened at that time that as Eli was lying down in his place, now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, I want you to be able to visually, mentally put yourself in the setting of what's being described and where Samuel is at. Samuel's probably 12 years old, right, about this point in time. And he's lying down where the Ark of the Covenant is. So when you think of the Ark of the Covenant, I'm going to put an image on the screen for you that most people think of when they think of the Ark of the Covenant, right? We go Indiana Jones. It's not wrong. Raiders of the Lost Ark, I thought it was actually a pretty good movie representing the power of God. And the fear that people have around the Ark of the Covenant. So this place where Samuel is lying down as a boy, he's sleeping where the Ark of the Covenant is. This is a real situation. And we're also told that the lamp of God has not gone out yet. So what is that? That, That's the seven-branched candlestick. Now, this seven-branched candlestick is a remarkable piece. Over 100 pounds of pure gold, God brought on the finest craftsmen in the land. Intricately, they, they put it together, and it's got these little oil cups at the top. Now, Samuel, as a boy, his job at night, each night was to refill it with oil. And as the wicks went out, he'd refill it again in the morning because you were never supposed to get the lamp to go out. He would just trim the wicks and add more oil to it. And fast forward in time. This is going to feel like a rabbit trail, but it's not. Fast forward to the first century, the nation of Israel rejects Jesus, and there's some treasures that are carried off because when Rome comes with the 5th legion, the 7th legion, the ninth legion, and the 11th legion to lay siege to Israel and kill over a million people, they burn the temple and they haul off the things of God, including the seven-branched candlestick. So this first image of the destruction, let's go to that next slide, is the destruction of Israel captured by an artist. But the very next image you see is going to be the Arch of Titus. You can see that today if you go to Rome. The forum is just 
yards away from the Arch of Titus. What's inside the Arch of Titus? This next image, which is a carving of the seven-branch candlestick. Caesar put the Arch of Titus up to commemorate the conquering of Jerusalem and the capturing of the seven-branch candlestick, and they hauled it off to Rome. Nobody knows where it's at today. This is a real situation. What you're reading about, even though it's thousands of years removed, this really happened in the lives of these people. And Samuel is sleeping where the seven-branch candlestick is at and the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 4, chapter 3, the Lord called Samuel and he said, here am I. Then he ran to Eli and he said, here am I for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lie down. The Lord called yet again Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Any of you have a six-year-old wake you up in the middle of the night? You know what it's like, get back to bed, will you please? I know maybe you're having a bad dream. Just go back and lay down again. Samuel, as I said, is somewhere, somewhere it looks like between 10 and 12 years of age, according to historians, mostly because the same word that's used to describe him at this time is the same word that was used to describe David when he went out to fight against Goliath. So pre-adolescent, right, right in that range. And God is calling what is likely a 12-year-old to deliver his message Three times, God calls out to Samuel. Why? I, I think if you agree with me on this part, I think something's going on here that God wants Eli to be aware of what's going on. Because I think, see if you agree with this, I think if Samuel had just showed up the next morning and said, did, did you hear that voice last night that I heard? He's likely going to say, you just had a bad dream. But watch this. Watch as this unfolds. Verse 8. The Lord called Samuel again for the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be if he calls you that you shall speak. You shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It's highly unusual, but Eli gets it. I want you to read between the lines here of what's not being said. Once again, God is not speaking directly to Eli. He's the chief priest. And God has to come to a child to deliver this message. He has to communicate with a child laying on his bed who's probably 12 years old and has been serving in the temple since he was a toddler. That's who God has to deliver this for. So the child is waiting for the creator of the universe to speak because he has to be a messenger to the nation. Because God can't even speak to the leader of the nation. That's how hard Eli's heart is. He can't even hear God in the middle of the night. That's how removed Eli is from this genuine place of relationship. Next verse, so Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. Verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. The word that's used there, salal, it actually means for the ears to turn red. Like when you think of high blood pressure and somebody's ears turns really red, God said that person who hears of what I'm about to do, their ears are going to vibrate. They're going to be red. And that's what this tingling is talking about. And the immediate reference is to Eli's house. But the abandonment is going to impact the nation. God's bringing judgment against Eli, but it's going to affect the entire nation. The national leaders have committed such blatant sin against God, and they show no sign of remorse and no repentance, and there are consequences for rejecting God and not heeding his warnings. And this is what God is doing, is bringing the warnings. And here's what he says to Samuel. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, for I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. So Eli's the high priest and he's the daddy. 
who else is going to speak into the lives of his sons? If he's waiting for somebody else to show up, it's not going to happen. He's as high-ranking official as you get, and yet he's not willing to deal with the behavior. And so as high priest, he has the responsibility for delivering the punishment. As father, he has the responsibility for rebuking. God said, you knew this, and you wouldn't deal with it. Verse 14, therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And there is a point, there it is, where God's tolerance is exhausted and you can push his hand of wrath to the point of abandonment and his hand will move. Verse 15, so Samuel lay down until morning and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. I bet. I bet he didn't sleep. The last thing you'd want to do is catch up with Eli the next morning. So Samuel rises. He opens the building. He's busying himself with his chores. He runs to Starbucks, gets Eli's coffee, brings it back, sets it on the counter, and hopes to vacate the kitchen before Eli ever sees him. And then he hears Eli. Samuel, what did he tell you? Look with me at this. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. He said, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. You know, church, I suspect that Eli already knew. He's already had multiple warnings. God has sent him Warners, individuals who would bring the warning. He personally heard God's warning multiple times. So Samuel, verse 18, so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. I have to tell you of this entire story that we're looking at, I'm most stunned by that. I I actually struggle for words. Maybe I would say ambivalent, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. No repentance, no remorse, hard-hearted, well, it's God. Let him do whatever he's going to do. So because of this refusal to deal with the issue, God has to bring the wrath of abandonment and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. Shift over to chapter four with me. Just a couple more verses to illuminate this situation. I don't don't know what you know about the Philistines. If you've studied the Old Testament, you understand that the Philistines are the arch enemy of Israel. At this period of time, they dominate the coastal region. It appears that they came down from the region of Crete and inhabited this area. Eventually, they became so dominant, they gave their name to the people who live in that area, Palestine, Palestinians. So these Philistines are the forerunners of what we know today as people of Palestinian descent. And we find out there's an issue between Israel and Palestine. Go figure. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 1, now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer. If you've been here at New Hope for any length of time, you know that we sing a song that talks about what many people think is Ebenezer. And in the midst of the song, it says, here I raise my Ebenezer. And many people think they're singing about Scrooge, and they're not. So Ebenezer is actually Ebenezer in Hebrew, and Ebenezer represents a monument in your life. For them, they're camping beside the monument where God allowed Israel to cross over the Jordan River. And they erected these huge stones as a memory of an Ebenezer to what God had done when he had been powerful in their midst. And so this people of God, who's always followed God up till this point, they're camping next to this Ebenezer stone. If you're wearing a necklace or a chain right now that has a cross on it, That's an Ebenezer for you. It it reminds you of God in your life. You're holding your Bible. Perhaps your Bible is your Ebenezer. You're about to participate in communion. The cup and the bread, that's an Ebenezer. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness to you and what he's done for you. That's where these people are camping next to this big rock that's an Ebenezer. Verse 2, 
The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Mortifying. Shocking. This hasn't happened before. So they have, likewise, a response to this, verse 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. They're thinking like the Germans in Raiders of the Lost Ark. We'll capture the Ark and we'll take it into battle. That's what they're thinking. What's missing here? Well, first of all, prayer. They have not fallen on their face and come before God and said, God, we've got an issue here. What have we done? Reveal to us what's going on. There's no prayer going on here. And then they come up with their own scheme. They're coming up with their own plan to get themselves out of this situation. They contrive a quick man-made solution to a very deep spiritual issue. They immediately think back to Joshua at the Battle of Jericho when Joshua carried the Ark of the Covenant before them and the walls of Jericho collapsed. Let's do that. That worked. Let's try that again. Can, can I say that God is not a genie in a lamp? You can't just rub the, the lamp in the magic way and if you do it just right, then God will appear. Nothing other than a truly humble, repentant heart repentant of sin, walking in his will. But most people don't like God's formula because it's not quick. It's not fast enough. I want turnaround now. But God says there's a formula. First Chronicles seven fourteen. I know many of you have memorized this. Look at me on the screen. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and watch the three things and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land, heal their land. See, these individuals, they don't know what's wrong, but they understand God's not with them. And their mistake is they assume they can conjure him up by bringing along the ark so that the men were sent to Shiloh to bring the ark back. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, there they are, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So the nation has God in a box. We've got to get out of jail free card. We're going to bring the wrath of God against these people. And Hophni and Phinehas, in their conniving, scheming way, are right there with it. They're not my people which are called by my name. They're not repenting. They're not praying. They're not seeking his face. They're so blind to sin, they cannot discern that God has departed. And the wrath of abandonment is knocking at their door. So instead, they're looking for this fast track to victory. But God's word in 2 Chronicles says it's about purity. Purity of the heart of the individual. If each of us would repent, if each of us would come back to God, if each of us would say, I'm seeking after you, if we would reflect moral obedience, it begins with each individual person. Now, the Philistines, they're superstitious. They're of the mindset that the arrival of the ark equals the coming of God. Neighboring countries did that. Whenever the neighboring countries brought the image of their deity into the battlefield, into their camp, they believed that the deity was represented in the imagery. That carried over into the first century. The Romans did it when they carried the big gold eagle before them when they went into battle. They believed that their god, small g, was embodied within that artwork and that imagery. So watch the reactions of the Philistines. Verse 5, as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that all the earth resounded. So that's actually meaning it shook. If you've been to a game at Spartan Stadium or maybe at the big house for the University of Michigan 
and you've decided maybe this is a good time to check out and you want to go up into the area where the concession stands are at and you make your way and think, oh, there's a break coming or the game's moving a little slow. I'm just going to go get something to eat. And you go up in the concession stand and all of a sudden you hear a roar coming from inside and you think immediately, oh no, what did I miss? But the realization is the resounding, vibrating, moving throughout the stadium has caused you to recognize something just happened. And there's a whole lot of high-fiving and fist-bumping going on, and they're thinking, we've got God in a box. And there's this false sense of security that's come around them. Uh, here comes a big chunk of watching the Philistines' reaction. Verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. Now, mind you, they have no spiritual insight whatsoever. They're just assuming that God is there. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Wait, can that be right? And, and the ark of God was taken? I get that Hophni and Phinehas died. But the ark, of God is, the ark of God is taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 12, now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and he came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head and he's in mourning for what has just happened. And Follow this. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. Public magistrates, rulers of nations, they sat at the gates of the city. Some of them sat on high judgment seats. That's the case with Eli. At the main gate of the city, that's where they would render their verdict. All the nations did it. And the judge, the high ruling officer in the nation, would be sitting at the gate in his official chair in his judge's seat. And the judge's seat didn't have a back on it. And Eli's sitting there, and he's trembling for the safety of the ark. And the news of the defeat reaches Shiloh. Verse 14, when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Verse 16, the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Pause. I told you this is a real event. There was an ostracon discovered in 1970. It's one of the world's foremost ostracon. What that is is a, a clay piece that writes down the history of an event. It's, it's the oldest ostracon ever found representing biblical history, and it was found representing this very event. Let me put the quote for you on the screen. From the 12th century BC, until the field we came, until, unto Aphek from Shiloh, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant to Dagon, Lord of Ashdon, and to Gath. That, that's Goliath's hometown. This is a real event. This actually happened. It's recorded in history, extra-biblical history. Verse 17, and the guy is still delivering the news to Eli. Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. 
I thought that was the thing that if you touched it, you were supposed to disintegrate. I thought that represented that God was there if you had that thing. Eli is 98 years old. He's obese and he's totally blind. But it's the shock of hearing that the ark has been taken that is too much. God has abandoned them. Verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. And the tragedy doesn't end there. Phineas's wife, she's nine months pregnant. She gives birth that same day. She hears the trauma, she goes into labor, and she delivers the child, and she dies in childbirth. But before she can deliver the child, she names the child. She names the child Ichabod. Don't ever name your children Ichabod, okay? Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. How would you like to wear that moniker all your life? The glory of God has departed. And the story comes to an abrupt end. How do we apply this reality of what we learned last week and what we learned this morning to today? Here, start here, supremely. I hope you agree with this. Supremely, first and foremost, God is absolutely just. And he will not ever deliver condemnation unless it's deserved. So there's consequences. When you deviate from God's law, there's a price to pay for rejecting his standards. How do we know when a nation reaches this point? How do we know when it's come to the United States of America in 2021? How do we understand it? When you see a nation in deep perversion affirming sexual immorality and the insanity of a reprobate mind where laws are passed to protect criminal behavior and the righteous are criminalized because they pass laws against them, legalizing gross evil. You know that nation has crossed the line. Romans 1, it records that that people has been given over. This is what we dug into so deeply last week. Look with me at Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. If you go on to read verse 24, it will say, men laying with men, women laying with men, perversion of the sexual order of such a disgrace that God would say, it is absolutely an abhorrence to me. And so he goes on to say in verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And that's the great exchange. That's what Hophni and Phinehas did. The major point of Romans 1, if people persist in rejecting God, God will give them over. So verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And Paul isn't writing about ancient Israel. He's writing about all the nations that have done this exact same thing. So Romans 1 verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, watch, and that just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer... God gave them over to a depraved mind. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give heartily approval to those who practice them. Perhaps, perhaps the scariest component of God giving over is a depraved mind. At that point, you cannot discern that you're in the final stage and I want you to hear this very plainly from me. This is not a us versus them. We all struggle every day with sin. Sin easily entangles us on this planet. When it comes to sin, we all have it. The determining difference is, what do you do with the sin that you have? Some choose to continue to live in rebellion and they totally ignore the warnings of God. It's this aspect which you see in the life of Eli, Phineas, and Hophni. They're continuing in the unrepentant sin. And when they're confronted with it, 
to the degree that they reject it, they actually have to have other people come and say, this is what you're doing. They can't even see it themselves. And the nation suffered the consequences firsthand of the wrath of God. He turned his back on them. What about us? What does this mean for the United States of America? I think we hit that issue pretty hard last week. I prefer to deal with this issue individually. Rather than casting stones at our national, natural culture, it's obvious that there's this ongoing, increasing rejection of God. And I would say, if you were to ask me after the service, Mark, is there still hope? I would absolutely say to you, yes, there's still hope. We still serve a God who lives. He can bring revival if he chooses to. Can he do it? Absolutely. But new beginnings begin with individuals. Individuals who are willing to say, Jesus has his proper place in my life and not treat him as a get-out-of-jail-free card or as though we have God in a box, but rather make him Lord of your life, of every decision that you make, everything you choose to do. Because if you follow Jesus Christ, you follow him because you understand he saved you from that behavior. Therefore, you're not destined to wrath. You have to live like that. So I choose to enter into communion this morning with this thought, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. I hope you say amen on that one. That is such good news. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So we come into this place of communion right now with great hope and understanding, not only where we personally stand before God, but the responsibility that we have as individuals to speak into the lives of other people who may be completely confused and they need you to be that man or woman of God to speak into their life. Our tradition here at New Hope is always to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm about to ask you to come up and pick up the elements, but let me remind you why we do this. We do this part in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we lift the bread and we lift the cup, not only personally to remember, but also because it's a witness to the person on your right and on your left that you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to the way Paul writes this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. Here's what you're doing this morning. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That means that if you participate in this, you're a believer. You're proclaiming that he died for you and that you believe that he's coming again. In other words, you're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why there's this huge warning. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So if you're new to New Hope, what we do is we just allow time for you to sit there and, and examine yourself. And when you feel ready, come up to one of the tables in the front or in the back. Take the element, one cup containing two things. It's got the drink and the bread in it. Take it back to your seat. I will talk you through the rest. But for right now, this is your time to examine yourself. Who are you before? I don't think we can end this service without doing that song again. I know it wasn't planned. Um, we don't want you to miss the connection event. But I'm going to ask you to sing that song with me after we take communion. If you're able to, would you physically stand with me? It begins with an individual. An individual who's willing to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who died for you. Who said, this bread is going to represent my body which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. When you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Father, I stand with individuals who recognize who they are before you. Not worthy of what you've given us, but so appreciative of your amazing grace. You are so good to us. Thank you for saving us from the wrath to come. Thank you for Jesus and for the rescue. We sing this, Father, in recognition of who he is. And all God's people said,